0: Please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 26. As you're turning there, let me give you a quick description of what the next two sermons, at least what I hope for the next two sermons to be. Uh, in this chapter, Paul is appearing before uh, King Agrippa and Governor Festus uh, because they need to figure out why Paul is in trouble in the first place because Paul has appealed to go to Caesar in Rome to be really heard before the Supreme Court of that day uh, to see if he is guilty, which obviously he is not. He's so innocent that they don't even know what charges to give to him as they send him to Caesar. And chapter 26, uh, I'm going to do something a little unusual today. I'm going to preach the middle of the chapter, and I'm going to leave the beginning and the end of the chapter for next Sunday. So uh, to kind of explain that, uh, the bookends of the chapter, which are actually longer than today's text, will be left for next Sunday. I'm going to zero into the middle of what Paul is actually going to say in his defense and preach from that. So, I'm really covering just verses 17 to 23 today, and I plan to cover the rest of the chapter next Sunday. The reason for doing this is because this this little section in the middle is just so significant that I wanted to linger for a whole sermon on this topic. Uh, I've titled the sermon, What is Conversion? What is conversion? We, We live in a day where was the word proselytizing, right? Trying to convert people to your belief system is considered uh, very unpopular. Uh, It's interesting, usually the people who say that are trying to actually convert you to their own belief system while they're actually telling you those things. But um, the Bible, and we as Christians... Just tell you me personally, I am absolutely unashamed of the fact that we are trying to convert you. <laughs> if you are not a believer, we want you here today to hear about Jesus and to come to know Him, to be transformed by the saving message of Jesus. We believe that it's not just better news than what you may have heard previously; it's the only truly lasting and eternally significant good news that you will or could ever hear in this world. It's the only good news that is absolutely essential to hear and believe. And without this good news, every else ends up fading into insignificance uh, without it. And so we would absolutely love for you, if you don't know the Lord, to come to know the Lord even in this service. Now, I know most people within the sound of my voice right now are believers, which I rejoice about. But we as Christians need to ask some questions. Number one, we need to celebrate this, uh, this miracle if it has happened to us. If we have been converted to Christ, we should know theologically what happened to us. This is not just theology for theology's sake. We need to know what has happened. What has God done miraculously to intervene in my life and rescue me from myself, from my sin, from God's just judgment? The more our theology is honed about conversion, the more we can rightly praise God for what He has already done in our life if we already know the Lord. Also, if we're Christians, this is still relevant to us because every single one of us knows people who do not yet know the Lord. Every single one of us. Just think right now of someone you saw this week, maybe someone you work with, someone in your family who does not know the Lord, someone you bump into regularly, someone you might even have texted yesterday or something that you'd know that does not know the Lord yet. We need to know what conversion is so we can best know how to present the good news to those people, how we can best love them and try by God's grace to win them to the truth. So. Um, I am going to, just just real quick, the, I, I won't even read the beginning of the passage. We'll save that for later. But Paul talks about his pre-converted life at the beginning of his hearing before King Agrippa. He talks about his Jewish background. He talks about his trip on the road to Damascus. I'm going to pick up in verse 12 and read through verse 23. And this, again, is God's word. Acts 26, verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king... And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." I'm going to stop the passage at that point. Although my outline is extremely simple and just goes with the passage, I did get help in figuring out where to break it out and how to how to put it together. So um, thank you to Kevin Young for some help on that. Um, here are the three points that I would like to walk through today uh, in some detail. Uh, number one, and if, the really short version is just open, turn, receive for three points, but it's a little longer than that. Open, turn, receive. Number one, open your eyes. Number two, Turn from darkness to light. And number three, receive forgiveness and a place. And we'll talk about that as we go. So number one, open your eyes. Look with me here when Jesus appears to Paul. He's the furthest thing from a Christian. Again, just just as an encouragement, if you, and I, I don't expect this is a lot of people, maybe in this room, maybe it's no one in this room, but if this is you, please hear this. If your background has been one where you have had real deep, living animosity towards Christianity. Maybe that could be for various reasons. Maybe it was something that happened earlier in your life. Maybe you have some sort of background or some story as to why you feel the way that you feel. But if there is real and intense animosity towards the Christian faith, I want you to know that the man who is being converted in this passage had more animosity toward the Christian faith than all of us put together, okay? Th- th- this man had an unbelievable rage against Christianity, thinking it was heretical and leading people away from the true God, and he was involved in persecuting and killing Christians, and yet the Lord rescued him. First Timothy 1, Paul tells his conversion… you, you know how many times Paul's conversion appears in the New Testament? It's in Acts 9. It's in Acts 22, I think. It's in Acts 26. It's in 1 Timothy 1. It's in Galatians 1. It keeps appearing. 1 Corinthians 15. It is all over the place because it was such an astonishing conversion, and in 1 Timothy 1, Paul says to those who maybe are hostile to the Christian faith, Paul says, the Lord Jesus showed mercy to me, I love the King James, as the chief of sinners, right? The foremost sinner, the number one sinner you can imagine was me that that's Paul and the lord showed mercy to me why so that his perfect patience would be on display for all those who would ever trust in christ if jesus could save a member of isis like paul if you mean if you understand what i mean he can save anyone someone who was actively involved in the murder of christians he can save anyone at all so please know that as we walk through these points again opening of the eyes verse uh, let's start really back at verse 15 Paul said up to heaven, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people, that's the Jews, and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Now, I want you to hold your spot here. I'm going to turn to a few different passages today to sort of add a little clarity to this passage. So, hold your spot here, and I want you to turn to the left to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Now, I think we all know John 3.16, and I want to read that, but I want to read the whole paragraph that it sits within and listen to what Jesus tells us here. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, now pause here. Jesus is gonna tell us why people, and this was all of us at least one point in our life, why all of us resist Jesus naturally or by nature. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world So here here it is. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. That's Jesus. He is the light of the world. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we are all, every single one of us is born, like Ephesians 2 says, dead in trespasses and sins. And what that means is, we are spiritually dead, we are also spiritually blind. The Bible uses sensory language, sight, hearing, tasting, the Bible uses sensory language to describe conversion all over the place, and we are described as being born blind. What this means is, We do not have an accurate perception of reality. The things, now think, if you're a believer, you can look back at your previous life, if you can remember life as an unbeliever, and you look at the things you once loved and cherished in your sin, and you go, I cannot believe the kind of stuff that I was living for at the time. I look back now with horror. I'm amazed, I'm disgusted by some of the choices I made, some of the habits that I had formed, some of the ways that I was living, but at the time, We were thinking that we were to find life and joy and satisfaction in those things. And it's almost as though in the darkness, we're clutching onto something that we think is a treasure. And when the lights go on, we realize it is something disfigured and disgusting, and we throw it away. And so what we need in conversion is for our eyes to be open. And because with our blindness, we actually love the dark rather than the light, and therefore we refuse to come to the light that we might have our deeds exposed for what they are. Turn to the right to 2 Corinthians chapter four. 2 Corinthians chapter four. I will admit to you that this to me is one of the pivotal texts, one of the key texts about conversion in the whole Bible. And I come back to it again and again for clarity on this issue. Look at Second Corinthians 4 here, verse 1. Paul writes, "'Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God." Now just pause there. This is not the main point. Paul is saying, when I teach Scripture, I lay it out there and make it plain. Anybody listening should in their own conscience know that I'm not trying to manipulate the text to please my hearers, I'm not trying to say what necessarily people want me to say. It's like 2 Corinthians gathering people to tell them what their itching ears want to hear to suit their passions. No, Paul says, listen, it's it's not about that. I lay the truth out openly, clearly, and everyone's conscience should know this guy is not playing games with God's Word, he is simply beneath it, laying it out and saying, I'm submitting to it. Whatever it says is what I want to teach. And as Paul does that, he preaches about a crucified Messiah, which is as as offensive and shocking when you think about it then as it ever has been. And so Paul speaks about some people who react with blindness to that gospel. Look at verse 3. That's what veiled is referring to, blindness. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, those who are perishing, in their case, the God, little case g, of this world, that's Satan, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded, so there's our spiritual blindness, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing their spiritual sight, the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god now we've all probably had an experience of this where you're sitting down with somebody and you begin to unpack your belief in christ you begin to unpack the gospel and explain christ's substitutionary death for sinners you explain the fact that god so loved the world that he gave his son of all the things He could give. He gives His Son for us, that Jesus lived for us, that He died for us, that He was buried, that He was raised, that if we simply turn in simple faith and trust in Jesus, we will find ourselves relocated, no longer outside of Christ, but in Christ, secure in Christ, taken care of by the Good Shepherd. And we look at the face across from us, and the face is completely blank. There is no receptivity. They're staring at you, and you can already see the eyes are starting to glaze over, right? That long-distance stare they're giving you, and you begin to talk about how it shaped your life. You say, for me, when I was 16, I was completely lost, although I thought I was a believer in some sense. The Lord opened my eyes, and for the first time, Scripture came alive. You begin telling this to somebody, and they're just looking at you, going, you know, I'm glad you found something. I have a relative who, not long after my conversion, I wrote... handwritten letter. I never write handwritten letters almost ever. I wrote a long, multi-page handwritten letter explaining all that had happened to me. I explained the gospel as best I could. I think I was a teenager still. I followed the letter up. I sent it off to the relative, and the relative said, you know, I'm uh, I'm glad Mark has found something that works for him. I have something that works for me. It's not church. It's not Jesus. I got something that works for me. I'm glad you found what works for you. But we've all had these moments where you just encounter blindness, and what for you is radiating with light and life and power, what's changed your life, what gets you excited, when you try to share it, it's like you're speaking in a foreign language and there is absolute blindness. Now, if this does not motivate prayer, I don't think anything else will, because we know the only one who can give sight to the blind, whether physically or spiritually, is the God in heaven. And we need to ask God, Lord, please, as I speak your word, empower my words, my weak words with your powerful spirit. And as I speak this gospel, this message that is foolishness to many, that is considered weakness to others, as I speak this message, it's just words, that you would empower them by your spirit, that you would, as the spirit as promised, would glorify and lift up Jesus and that all of a sudden this person speaking to me would either in that moment or later that night or a week later or a month later contact me and say, listen, something profound has changed in my life. I can't even quite explain it. I started having this nagging desire to keep reading the Bible after you left. I don't know what it was. And, and over the last few weeks, I keep reading it. I've been reading through New Testament letters. I don't understand most of what I'm reading, but I can't stop reading it. There's something g- grabbing hold of me. And before long, a few months go by and this person starts feeling what? The conviction of sin. For the first time in their life, maybe they start saying, I've never even thought of myself as a sinner before. And now I'm actually seeing that there is filthy, dark stuff in my life if this thing came out in public i would be embarrassed i'd be shamed to know if, if people knew who i really am sometimes what i've really done i think i'm actually sinful there was a, uh, a a christian counselor david pallison some of you have read his books he passed away from cancer a few years ago he's a gentle humble godly man i recommend uh, pretty much all of his stuff to you it's, he's a wonderful guy and he has a a a video where he describes his conversion This is back in the late 60s or so, and he was in his 20s, I think he was in his mid-20s, somewhere around there, and uh, he had gotten into all the, I mean, all this kind of stuff. Very secular uh, in his beliefs, he was involved in the drug culture and all kinds of stuff. He said, when you think of the 60s, the late 60s and all that was going on, he said, I was at the heart of that. I was doing that stuff. And he said, he had a friend of his at that time who was converted to Christ, unexpectedly. And he said, we got into a, really a debate about the truth of Christianity. And he said, I can only attribute it to the grace of God that I wanted to keep the debate going. He said, but he and I would see each other every so often over these years. And every time we saw each other, inevitably late in the evening, we'd get back into a discussion. And he said, we would circle the cul-de-sac, the reliability of scripture, right? The historicity of Jesus, the historicity of the resurrection, there are all these things. He said, I always had my way of trying to dodge his arguments and get around them. And he said, one night, Uh, He he comes into town, I'm over at his house, and uh, he said something happened. My friend looked at me and he said, with with an unusual forcefulness, he he looked at me and said, David, my wife and I, we, we love you, we respect you, we care about you. But he said this line, how he said, but how you are living and the things that you are believing are destroying your life. And he said, I I can only explain this by the Spirit. When, When my friend who I knew loved me said, you're destroying yourself with your beliefs and your life. He said, the words penetrated into his heart with the force of shock almost from the Holy Spirit. And he said, he came under tremendous conviction of sin that night. And he said, he and his friend continued speaking and he said, he got in his car and he actually said, I prayed to the Lord. He said, it wasn't this sort of Jesus come into my heart prayer. It was this God be merciful to me, a sinner prayer he said, I got back in my, into my car and I started driving back to my home that night. And he said, I had no idea that if you would have asked me, I would not have said, I think I just became a Christian. He said, that language was not even in my mind. I wasn't thinking in those categories. But he said, as I drove home that night, he said, I had this overwhelming sense for the first time, I'm a sinner. And it wasn't just pithy theological you know, jargon. No, no, like I am sensing down deep in my heart that truly, if I were to stand before justice, I would come up short. And he said for the first time he felt himself a sinner. He said he went home that night, he went to bed, he said when I woke up in the morning, he said I was flooded with joy. And he said he felt like he'd been walking long dusty roads his whole life. He said for the first time in his life, he felt like I have come home, I'm a Christian. And his life completely was transformed. What happened to him that evening in his friend's home? His eyes were opened. He was blind to his sin and blind to the Savior. All he saw Christianity was was some fun debate topic to try to disprove Christians and show that they're wrong. But he said after five years, he graciously lost the debate. And he said, I went home that night and I was sold out then for the Lord Jesus from that time moving forward. Do you have a veil lying over your heart? Do you even understand this language? It says there's a veil over their minds. This means when the gospel is presented, even if you know all the right theological answers, there is no sense of the beauty and the glory and the excellency of Jesus. He's a word that you could answer on a quiz or a test. You might know all the right language from growing up, maybe in a Christian home, but when it comes right down to it, you would never, if you were being honest, speak of Jesus as glorious, Beautiful, compelling, excellent. I mean, you you see glory in other things in your life, but Jesus is is just blank to you. If you want to know Satan's involvement in the world today, when you bring up the demonic, people start thinking about, you know, doodling pentagrams on the ground and having some sort of weird ceremony in a haunted house sort of situation, that kind of thing. No, I don't believe in haunted houses, I mean, just for the record. And um, you, you think of these very strange you think of like exorcist movies, which I don't recommend that you watch. And every time I tell that to my students, they come back and say, hey, I watched one this weekend. I'm like, I should probably stop telling you not to watch them. she uh, say, you should go watch them. And they won't go watch them, I don't know. But uh, all these movies about exorcisms and all these things, it's these extraordinary grotesque things that we think of when we think of the demonic. You wanna know what demonic is? Do you wanna know what satanic is? Boredom with Jesus. If you think I'm making this up, look at verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the what? The glory of Christ who is the image of God. If Jesus is fundamentally either… Interesting only in a historical sense, like you like to debate about some, you know, you like to debate about Aristotle or Socrates, he's just another interesting historical figure to debate about. If that's all you see in Jesus, I don't think you yet see Jesus for who He is. Or on the other side, you know all the right answers about Jesus, but your heart is… If you're just being honest, reading the Bible is almost always a chore. Prayer is nothing but willpower to get through any amount of time. When you sing songs, great, rich songs, whether in church or at home, it's just completely on it. Maybe you might be interested in the music aspect of it, but the actual lyrics and what they say about Jesus does not actually stir your affections and your heart. I have serious questions about where you are spiritually. If if that truly describes you long-term all the time, no matter what you profess to say, I would say I don't see evidence of genuine faith in Christ in your life. Because let's be honest here, does Satan believe all the facts about Jesus that are true? Does Satan, do the demons believe Jesus died for sinners, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he's triumphant over death and even Satan himself, that Jesus is coming back to judge the world in righteousness, that Jesus will one day save his people and judge his enemies, that there's a lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That one day cast into the lake of fire all those who've rejected him, including Satan and his demons. Do the demons believe all that? Do they believe that God is one, that there's one God? Yes. And they tremble. Right, They tremble with fear of that God. And yet, although they have all the right answers about Jesus, there is zero affection for the Lord other than hatred in their case. There is no delight. There is no sense of beauty. There is no sense of glory. They might see his external power and magnificence in some sense, but they have no heart sense of the beauty and excellency of our Lord Jesus. So how can our eyes be opened? Let's continue here. Verse five, Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. So here's how the eyes open, verse 6. He, he looks back to the creation story, let there be light, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, or let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The miracle that takes place that we must ask the Lord for is that He would speak into our hearts and say, just like into the darkness of Genesis 1, let there be light and there was light. And the heart opens, the eyes open, the veil is lifted and suddenly the gospel that was so boring So uninteresting, foolishness, folly. Suddenly, that has captivated your heart. It has captivated your affections. It has captivated what you love. And and I I know I'm 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 sort of pushing against a lot of typical stereotypical Southern Baptist life here. But Southern Baptists like to talk about deciding for Christ. It is so much more than a New Year's resolution for Jesus conversion. Because a New Year's resolution for Jesus, deciding for Christ, that, that what that can often be is making a decision to make external actions change in your life without a change in your nature, without a change in your deep loves and what you value deep down. Conversion is not deciding despite your nature, it is the miracle of a transformation of nature so that now what you love in your sin, you now no longer have that same love. And what you used to find boring and uninteresting now is captivating. It is full of life and power and beauty. And you have been transformed. That This is why we desperately need the Lord's assistance in, the, in, in, in conversion itself. Turn with me back to our primary text, uh, Acts chapter 26. So number one is open your eyes. Number two is to turn from darkness to light. Let's reread starting at verse 17. Jesus has sent Paul and he says, delivering you, Acts 26, 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Hold your spot again, and I want to turn to the right this time, to Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. As you are turning there, I'm just going to give you just a a number of verses. You don't turn to these verses, I'll just read them quickly. These are just a little sampling, mainly from the Psalms, of the sensory language that is used to describe uh, people who come to know the Lord. You'll recognize some of these verses, I'm I'm pretty sure. Psalm 34:8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do you hear that? It's not just deciding or having a mental assent that Jesus is good, it is tasting and seeing that He is good. Psalm 119, 103, "'How sweet are Your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth.'" Now, now let's be honest here. Verses like that, how sweet are Your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth? You have to decide. Either that is religious jargon that just… it's just a statement people say that doesn't mean anything. Like biblical words are as sweet as honey to my mouth that's just something religious people say because that's what they're supposed to say or that's actually literally true that that there is a sweetness to scripture that the spiritual appetite has when you are born again you can taste and see the sweetness of jesus in scripture and it is sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb either that's just nonsense or that is absolutely true and if it is true which i believe with all my heart it is true Do you have that experience? Are you pursuing that kind of communion with the Lord? Psalm 19 verses nine and 10, the rules, get this, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Seriously, reading the Bible is more valuable in the heart of this psalmist than acquiring great wealth. That's either religious nonsense talk, or that is actually true of a born-again person. If you were to put all the wealth and power in the world on one side of the scale, and you were to put your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus in Scripture on the other side of the scale, not what, not what would you say out loud in public, we all know what we would all say in this room. Oh, I prefer Jesus, yeah. Billions of dollars, get out of here, it's Jesus. Okay, yes, we all know what we would say with our words, in the quietness of your conscience right now, sincerely, are you already in this moment trading one for the other? Are you trading Christ for, for wealth? Are you making compromises? Are you doing things with money that, that are not up to God's standard? Are you living more for wealth and money and power and influence than you actually are for the Lord Jesus? We need to be honest about this in our own heart. First Peter 2, you'll, you'll recognize this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good the sign that the infant is alive and is doing well is that the baby baby when it gets hungry is craving that milk it must have it it will The child will make your life miserable until you get it. something. Come on, help me. Does anyone see me over here? If you can't see me, you will hear me, okay? You may have forgotten. You tucked me away over here. I'm gonna make myself known. I am hungry. I must have milk. Is there a spiritual appetite within us? Honestly, if, if you've gone days or even weeks with a neglectful relationship with the Lord, really distracting yourself with other things, and we've all fallen into these patterns at times, deep down, is there a misery? that begins to show itself, an emptiness that just begins to show its head, where you go, this is not where life is to be found. I'm distracting myself. I'm getting all this clutter in the way. I need to stop and I need to come to Christ for actual bread and water. I need to come to Him for satisfaction. Like Isaiah says, come all you who thirst, come without money, buy and drink. There's this offer in the gospel, one more, Psalm 36, which I read at the beginning of the service. The children of mankind, Take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Do you hear the sensory language? And is that true of you? That there is a seeing of Christ's beauty, a hearing truly? Let he who has ears truly hear? Is there a hearing of the beauty of Christ and a tasting of who Christ is? And even with the Lord's Supper, there's an actual physical touching, commun- uh, touching aspect to Christ communicating His love uh, to us in that way. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look with me at verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will." Do you see this? We come to our senses. We wake up and we see, okay. I was drinking from dirty water in a broken cistern. Remember Jeremiah 2? My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the Lord God, the fountain of living water, and they've dug out for themselves cisterns in the ground, cisterns that are cracked and broken and can't hold water. And they're trying to find satisfaction here. So when the eyes open, you look at what you've been living for and you go, this cannot sustain a human soul. It was not designed to satisfy me. And what repentance is isn't some fancy theological word. Repentance is looking at what you've been living for and going, this will never sustain me. It cannot sustain me. And you t- simply turn away from that and turn to life, living water. Jesus, who can satisfy you forever, forgive you of your sin and satisfy you forever. Repentance is so often painted, it is this negative thing. Oh, you gotta repent. No, th- this is a joyous invitation to turn away from what cannot satisfy and to invite you to what only can satisfy. That's repentance, it's simply admitting reality that this is not working and only the Lord Jesus can actually do for me what my soul needs done for me. And when God grants that repentance and I come to my tr- the knowledge of the truth, I escape from the devil's snare and I turn to the open arms of our Lord Jesus. Let's turn back to Acts 26. Finally, the third point, we receive forgiveness and a place or an inheritance depending on your translation. Look with me at… I'm going to reread the passage again here. Look with me at verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may… Here's our third point, receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Me." It is nothing but faith in Jesus that sanctifies you. Now let me just real quick here, for those who are used to that word sanctified, okay, just a a footnote, okay? In systematic theology, which is when you break down the Bible into topics and you work through a bunch of different topics, what does the Bible say about whatever it is? We often use the word justification for the one-time act of becoming right with God, right? We are justified once and forever the moment we put our faith in Christ. You could be a five-year-old and have a very small understanding of the gospel, but if you truly trust in Christ in that moment, that five-year-old is as justified as any saint in heaven. Okay, that's justification. But then we often, in theolog- in systematic theology, we often use the word sanctification for what? Not that one-time event, but for the lifelong process of gl- growing in holiness, slowly growing in holiness over a long period of time, right? This use of the word sanctification is not referring to the lifelong process. It is referring to a positional change that happens just with justification, so we, we are We are our status is now sanctified we are counted holy in christ we are sanctified once and for all by faith in christ so the moment you believe all the sin defilement dirt all the evil of your life is washed away cast as far as the east is from the west and you are now positionally holy in christ you are sanctified completely, positionally in Christ by faith in Him. And in that moment we receive full forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Now, you can probably hear it here, turning or repenting and faith are not things that can be separated from each other. Again, I'm not trying to uh, belittle anybody, but th- this, is, this, is, this is unbiblical thinking, so test, test yourself or maybe you've heard someone say this. I, mean, I can still remember in Bible college a friend of mine saying, and this is very typical, I've heard this many times, my friend in Bible college said, uh, I think I received Jesus as my Savior when I was, I think he said seven, but then I, I didn't really get serious about my relationship with the Lord. He didn't really become the Lord in my life until I was 16. And People don't often say it that bluntly, but people will often separate when they became a Christian versus when they began actually living to some degree for the Lord. That separation, I'm trying to say this gently, that's not biblical, okay? So if, if, if Jesus is not the Lord to whom I love to follow His lead, not perfectly, but truly, if He's not my Lord, if I'm not following the Lord, I'm not yet, He's not yet my Savior. I'm not yet truly a believer. I have found it to be a tendency. Let's be honest here. We are a Southern Baptist church. The Southern Baptist denomination is notorious. Talked about this in Sunday school. It is notorious for having a shamefully low standard of what conversion actually is. Walk this aisle, pray this prayer, sign this card. You're in and don't ever question it. That is is what you hear and see rampantly. And then what happens is is this. There isn't any lasting repentance in the life of the individual, right? Just look, glance at the end of verse 20. Middle of verse 20, it says that they… Paul preached that they should repent and turn to God, you see this, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance? Repentance is not a one-time declaration at youth camp, although I'm not against that. Repentance is an ongoing thing. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Perform deeds in keeping with… Re- Genuine repentance is a lasting thing because it's coming from a new nature, not a simple resolution. And, and what I would just say simply is because especially Southern Baptist churches have had a very, I think, unbiblically low bar about what conversion is. Just pray this prayer you're in, don't question it, that kind of thing. Because the bar has been set so low, we have to account for the fact that we have thousands and thousands of Southern Baptists who are not born again, but have prayed the prayer and we have to give a theological rationality for what's not true, biblically. Do you see what I'm saying? So we have to invent a theology that justifies the fact that they're Christians even though they're not actually living for Jesus and haven't been for quite some time. They don't even go to church anymore. They've dropped off the map. They're not living for the Lord in any way. They never touched their Bible. But, you know, 15 years ago, old Harry was back at that church event, and he gave his life to Christ. So I know he's not living for the Lord. The Lord may not be his Lord right now, but he's still his Savior. We, you know, we believe that. And, and what I want to say is, biblically, if we get this wrong, I mean, okay, like, this is not a game. All of us are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. If I or any of the elders at this church have taught wrongly what conversion is, then let's say we teach it incorrectly and you leave with a false sense of assurance because of what, say, I said, and you are deceived and you go stand before God one day and you're looking over at my teaching going, but you said, pastor, you said this, and I banked my hopes on how you interpreted Scripture, and here I am on the final day, and I'm not in Christ. What was that that you said to me, that, that assurance that you gave me? And so, we need to be very serious about this. Has the Lord actually transformed your nature? Not to perfection, but a genuine change in who you are in the deepest parts of your soul. I'm almost done here. Let me read the last section, verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The last time I'm going to ask you to turn, I want you to turn for communion to 1 Corinthians 11, and as you're turning there, I want to say one final thought. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians 11... If messages like this, if you feel unsettled by them or you go, you know, I don't quite know where I am with the Lord, or maybe you have questions, first of all, feel free to talk to any of us here at this church. We would love to speak with you about that. But here's the question that I have. If you say, yeah, okay, spiritual numbness… Spiritual blindness, that sounds like that's my life almost all the time. Yeah, the Bible's almost always completely boring if I'm honest and all the things about Christ are not gripping or compelling. Here's what I ask. Do you sincerely want what is being offered in the gospel? Because the Lord Jesus will hold nothing back from you his arms are open wide, he will receive anybody, everybody, whosoever will may come. Whoever takes the free gift of the water of life can have it without cost because Jesus paid the cost. Jesus loves to celebrate the welcoming of sinners into his arms. He is not stingy with his grace. He is not holding anything back. Here's the thing. If you, though, do not want that, then No matter how much I offer, nothing can happen. Do you want it? Deep down, do you say, listen, I've been living for a lot of other things, but deep down, I really want to know Jesus the way Scripture describes I can know Him. I want to celebrate Him, be wrapped up in the glory of who He is. I want that. Then listen, plead with the Lord and read His Word and plead with the Lord to say, Lord, show me the beauty of the character of Christ. Show me the glory of Jesus as I read Your Word. And don't stop praying until the Lord begins to open your eyes. And even then, don't stop. That's a continuous prayer that we should pray throughout our Christian life. And all of this, obviously, is founded on the central event of Christ's death and resurrection. First Corinthians 11, look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, "'This cup is the new covenant in My blood. "'Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of Me. "'For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, "'you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. "'Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord "'in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. "'Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup.'" If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, It would not be loving of us actually to invite you to this table because what you need is not these elements here, which are really symbols of what Christ has done. What you need and what is offered to you right now, far more importantly, is Jesus Himself, His blood shed and His body given for the sins of the world. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, and in this moment your heart is not walking in unrepentant sin, uh, you are grateful and thankful for the forgiveness of Christ that He has offered us, then we would ask as you choose to come forward and to take of the elements and return to your seat uh, celebrating the work of Christ for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I just think it is, it is highly likely that within the hearing of my voice right now there are at least some, I don't know who but likely there are some, even right now, who may even think in some sense that they are a Christian for certain reasons, but when they examine their heart, they realize that there there may not be that relationship that they thought, and that there may not be that delight in You. There may not be that eye-opening experience of seeing true glory, the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Lord, I pray that even right now, that You would Open their eyes, that You would show them the true beauty of Your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is the radiance of Your glory, the exact imprint of Your nature. He upholds all things by the Word of His power, and He finished dealing with sin through His sacrifice. He is seated now at Your right hand, and He's interceding for all of His people. Lord, for those of us who know You, God, I pray that You would just refresh um, our sense of Your beauty. It is just so easy, it is the gravitational pull of our flesh to become enamored by lesser things. God, please forgive us when we do that. It is easy for silly things to captivate us. God show us, let the darkness flee, bring the light of Your presence and show us how insufficient the things of this world are. All that my soul has tried has left but a dismal void. Jesus has satisfied, and Jesus is mine. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.